and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking Podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a returning guest, a friend, and someone who I've leaned on for advice, guidance, and I'd like to think vice versa. Patricia Falks came on the podcast in JSIP92 to talk about her blog, Just Me and Lily, where she writes about being involuntarily childless, her life, her wonderful dog Lily, of course, and issues affecting predominantly women, but also men who are involuntarily childless, her age or below. In part one, we discussed her life and how she came to be in the situation of being involuntarily childless, the positive mental health impact her dog Lily has, and also how she came close to taking her own life when a previous dog she owned sadly died. She views Lily very much like her child and her companionship together is a vital source of love and support in Trish's life now. Since we chatted, me and Trish keep in touch regularly. I send her family pictures from time to time. She always gives me a great self-esteem boost when we chat and we joke that she is almost like an honorary grandmother to me now. I am so passionate as well about giving the issues that Trish writes about a voice and I was very pleased when Trish agreed to come back on the podcast for a part two after we had a little phone call on Christmas Eve. In part two, we reflect on that first episode, what Trish has learned since it went out, how it was received online, and how she has grown the platform and done more advocacy work in the UK and abroad in the last year or two. We also discuss Trish's own self-awareness of her mental health, why she didn't speak about her mental health with her previous partners in the decades prior, and why they didn't either, how the mantra of just reach out, in air quotes, can be problematic when the reality of that in someone's life hits, and how we can move the mental health conversation and the conversation about involuntarily childless people forward. We also go in depth about the current statistics out there, there's not too many, but the current statistics out there around men and women who are involuntarily childless, question whether it will get worse or better, and what societal factors outside of simply infertility are affecting this phenomenon. We zig and zag between lots of other things, and I hope this conversation is a demonstration to you, the listener, about the importance of friendships between the generations in building societal bridges. Too often we hear very angry discourse online from older people, on the one hand, claiming young people can't buy a house because they're spending too much money on avocado, and young people claiming older people have had the best life possible and now want to punish young people for wanting a modicum of what they had. This is how my conversation with the wonderful Patricia Fawkes went. Trish, welcome back to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check back in with you. We had a chat on Christmas Eve, and we agreed to do this. So given you were feeling a little bit poorly earlier in the month or just before Christmas, how are you, first of all? How was your Christmas, and how did you spend New Year? Well, I'm fine now. I had a little bit of a cold, and so if I sound a bit hoarse, then you know that's the only reason. But other than that, I'm fine. Christmas and New Year, we'll come to that. I think we'll come to Christmas and New Year later in the chat. It was okay. It was all right-ish. But probably more to say on that later in the discussion, Freddie. 
Okay. All right. Brilliant. We've got so much to talk about, Trish, and I got so much lovely feedback from your episode, and I hope you did too. I'm very keen to discuss everything you've done since that chat and so much more. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Let's start your part two, Trish, by checking back in about your mental health journey. So firstly, a different question to the last time we chatted. Just tell me about the reaction to your part one, how you reflect on it, and the Trish we meet now one and a half, maybe one and three quarters years on. I think my mental health thing, because, you know, we spoke about mental health and me being of a much older age, that we had this slight problem with mental health is that, well, we don't have any, we don't have any, we do. So my mental health then, I think, was balancing on a, if I think about it, a sort of tripwire. You know, mm-hmm. where was I? Am I okay now? I wasn't. How it's been, the reaction to the podcast has been brilliant, to be fair. I, I still get people actually, you know, emailing and particularly on Twitter, because I've pinned it to the top of the Twitter thread, you know, oh, I think, you know, the podcast you did with Freddie Cock was absolutely brilliant, you know, so so it's all good. I thought the feedback was brilliant. Um, it surprised mm. me. I, I never think I do that well, you know, so I think, I think all the work was yours. How I am now, it varies. Most of the time, it's fine. I think I've learned how to kind of stabilise myself which, you know, we'll go into later. And I said somewhere that I regularly check in with my mental health. Mm. And you'd asked, how do you do that? The whole of this conversation is about sort of self-awareness and knowing yourself. And how do you do mm. that? How do you learn to know yourself? And I'm always learning about myself, even at my age. And, mm. you know, the more I learn, the more stable, I think is the word, I become. Yeah. And the more stable mm. I am, probably the more stable is my mental health. So at the moment, it feels all right. I'm not sure. Mm. How does anybody know? How can we actually assess our own <laughs> mental health? You know, I think somebody would have to say, well, yeah, you're fine. You're fine. But they'd say that anyway. But mm. I feel as if it's pretty stable. You've brought us nicely onto our first topic, which is self-awareness, Trish. And when we spoke off air, you sent me a really nice running order and brief about the things you wanted to talk about. And there was one bit which I loved where you said, you know, you talk to yourself and you do your day-to-day tasks. I do that myself living on my own. Does that keep your schedule on track? And is that your mind sort of greasing the tires of your mental health as well as the physical tasks you have to do? Uh, I think self-awareness is everything. You know, I think I've made that clear. I think I, I do. Do others? I don't know. You know, maybe it's something we should be asking. Self-awareness came to me some years back without me even reading about it. It was words just sort of came into my head a long time ago. And I don't know if I actively go out there and become self-aware. I'm just aware that I'm self-aware. I know myself. (laughs) We're always learning, aren't we? We're always learning Mm. about ourselves because we're changing. You know, we change as years progress. But my self-awareness is everything to me. I have to know myself. I have to know my good points, my many bad points. And you do have to know your, your faults. You have to be aware of your own faults, whatever they are. And that's the thing that frightens a lot of people. I think that can go the route of, you know, leading you you know, into the realms of mental health is not being honest with yourself, about yourself. How I've learned to be mm. self-aware, it's quite difficult to answer how you become self-aware, how you learn how to become self-aware. I don't think it's something you go out there and actively do. It may be something that you can talk to a therapist about. They would obviously be 
an ideal mm -hmm. person to speak to about that one. But I've just gone around talking to myself, <laughs> um, talking to myself, not in a mad way. I mean, I don't, you know, walk around the town centre muttering to myself. You know, I spoke about this, I know, that when the dog and I are out walking, and walking in nature is a huge, massive help to me, because nature is so clear and clean and fresh and honest. You know, it doesn't answer back. It doesn't give you the answers, but it kind of does. You can say anything when you're out in the middle of a field. You can say what you like to yourself. And this is the point then. If you're asking your own self questions, be honest with your answers. There's nobody there to listen to you. There's nobody there. It doesn't matter what you say. You don't have to go and tell somebody what you just told yourself, that you're a miserable old git or something. You know, it doesn't matter. You've been honest with yourself. And, and then maybe is the time to, do you want to do something about it? Maybe I do. How, if you're going to ask me, how does one do something about it? Ooh, I think that's more conversations with yourself, really. You mm. can't be constantly self-aware. You cannot. You just have to learn it, and it takes a long time. It's honesty. It's being very honest with yourself mm. and being very honest about yourself and not being afraid to be honest about yourself, even if it's only to yourself. So you don't have to go out and tell the world, mm. this is who I am, I'm a right so-and-so. You know, you don't have to do that, do mm. you? You know, If you know yourself who you are, then I would have thought that goes a long way to a certain stability in one's mm. mental health. I really love what you said there about self-awareness, Trish. And there was a quote that you put in our brief, which was that self-awareness is the biggest treasure you can have. And, and I think that's just a really important thing for, for all of us with our mental health. My next yeah. question is, is more around the way that children are being educated about their mental health today. And there's a lot I probably don't know because I'm not in school anymore. However, yeah. in my generation, this is only 15 years ago 2005 2010 when I was in secondary school so 11 to 16 mental health education not only didn't exist but was just hugely stigmatized anything was hugely stigmatized whereas now I fear that there's a lot of influencing factors like social media or you know the way kids are being raised or taught and just a load of other things outside of that where perhaps the pendulum is swinging too hard the other way kids might be self-diagnosing with things it might just be a general bit of anxiety. It might not be an, an actual mental health condition. So what is your perspective on this? As, as you were very keen when we spoke off air that children are taught how to get to know the raw version of themselves. So that's the truth. That's the truth, warts and all, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite hard, I think, for young people to, <clears throat> to learn mm. about how to be self-aware. I'm assuming as they get older, they know what it means. But they're bombarded with mental health. And mental health can mean anything, can't it? Serious mental health is very serious. Mental illness is different to mental health, is what you're saying, mental isn't it? Yeah. Is yeah. To mental health. So a fit of waking up in the morning and thinking, oh, I feel a bit down today, is not necessarily, I wouldn't have thought mental health. It's a fit of just feeling a bit down today. And it's not very mm. nice, but that's what it is. I mean, are we, are we doing the right thing in calling everything mental health? You know, I mm. had this conversation with you as I have with other people. Well, I don't have any mental health. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Mm. Yes, you do. And, you know, because... You're, not, you're not mentally ill. Everyone has mental health, but you're not mentally ill. Yeah. No, yeah. That's the impression it kind of gives, you see. If, if, anyway, what I, I worry about is that mental health for, for young people can be... A, they don't seem to mix as much as they used to, for one thing. I mean, I can only give the impression that I get... You know, they're stuck in front of their computers. So am I, actually. Mm. But then 
I've been through all their ages. They need to mix. They need to socialise. They need to know how to socialise. And, and perhaps I'm wrong, and probably they do, because I'm no expert on kids, am I? But this is the impression that we get as older people, and it's a question of just talk. Well, that's easy to sling out there, but who are they talking to? Who can they talk to? You know, just talking mm. to their mates may be the wrong people to talk to. I mean, if that brings me onto the subject of therapists, that's a whole different subject again. But if they need mm. to speak to a therapist, then are there enough therapists out there to speak to them? I wouldn't know. You know, that seems to be a fairly good point. That we go deeper then, should we encourage more young people to be therapists? But it's a very trained job. You know, it's a highly trained job. It's not you know, a lot of volunteers in, in various charities will offer a certain amount of therapy. How much therapy they know, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I know the Samaritans have some fairly deep, intense training, but a real therapist will have years of training. So when you get certain members of the royal family meaning well and footballers, etc., and saying, talk, just talk, who to? You know, you, you can talk mm. to your mates. Not everybody can talk to their parents. So just talking, I think we have to enlarge on that one and go a little bit deeper. Talk to someone you can trust should be the message, maybe, rather than just talk. Well, talk yeah. to someone you can trust, but do children know? Have they got that awareness mm. of who they can actually mm. trust? Because people go off and gossip, don't they? That'd be the worst thing. It's a worry when they keep saying that young people's mental health is, and clearly is, not as stable as it could be. You know, what the answer is, is is get them away from the computers more and, and, you know, interacting. They could interact with we older people, actually. You know, I could see that as being a very good way forward. We could have groups of younger people, groups of older people interacting more. It's in my head that I think that's a good thing to potentially Mm. try. Maybe we could roll it out. Maybe Mm. we could trial it in smaller areas. But because otherwise it's them and us. We're moaning about them. They're moaning about us. It's not a good thing to do. We can help each other, I'm sure. You've talked about self-care and the countryside, which was going to be my next question, Trish. So I'm going to move on to your childhood, which is something that you mentioned to me at various points in our chat off air and the impact that your childhood had on your awareness of your mental health and your life decisions. And the first major impact seems to be related to your self-esteem. So how did that shape you as you became an adult, positively or as it seems in our chat, negatively? Negatively, I would say. I mean, anybody's self-esteem, mm. if it's not, is, it's going to have a negative effect. And it takes quite a long while to repair, if it ever repairs. I think the problem for my childhood, excuse me, is that I didn't get really any praise as a kid. That was fairly commonplace in those, you know, those generations. But I didn't. In fact, quite often I got knocked. I can remember going out to meet my mates one night. This is in Leicester, where I was born. I can remember my dad saying, oh, those trousers, your backside looks huge in them. And I mean, I never did, you know. Whether I did or not, that's not the thing to say, is it? Mm. That kind of followed the pattern, really. It was it was never, you look fantastic. Go out and have a great mm. time. It was never that. I can remember writing an essay for, for school. I'd, I'd be about 11 or 12. And I was very good at writing and this was a this was a really good story it was a ghost story I remember it and my mum said did you write this yeah did you copy it no and the teacher said that the teacher actually said that did you write this you sure it wasn't copied no it was not copied I wrote it 
And it's little things like that that just, you know, that's tiny little things. But I don't remember ever really being praised much as a kid mm. by my peers or by my parents. My parents were very good parents. I can't knock them. They were good parents. They didn't show love physically. So, you know, they were lovely at mm. Christmas and they got lovely presents and everything. And they certainly looked after me. And they cared. I don't doubt that they didn't love me. I just wonder if they wanted me sometimes. That's how it felt. Mm. That's a weird thing to say, wasn't it? It's, you mm. know, they loved me, but did they want me? And, and then you get from mm. your own peers, oh, that was just a generational thing from those years. And I think, I don't know. I've not heard that from other people. Some people, mm. but not everybody. And so it does knock your self-esteem and your confidence. And yet, I don't know. My dad was quite gung-ho. And whether I've got a lot of that in me, I have no idea. But I would say that I've been quite gung-ho throughout my life. Let's have a big relay in the school playing ground for no reason whatsoever. And I would organise it. I would organise things from nowhere. I I just seem to be very good at organising things and, and not being afraid. I've not been afraid of failure. There's a thing. I haven't been afraid of failure. It wasn't that I thought, oh, I'm never going to fail. It may have been, but I've never been afraid of failure. So starting out the relay team in the school playing ground, you know, we'll have one. It'll work. Come on, everybody. It's going to happen. And it did. Setting up my own business, leaving a really good job and setting up my own business when I got a mortgage and and everything was a crazy thing to do. But it never fazed me. I wasn't afraid of it. I I just knew it was going to work. It might not have done. Mm. It did work as it happened. I don't know if it's a sort of... I don't, I'd probably better not swear, but... You can swear if you want. Well, a sort of, all right, I don't know if it's a sort of shit or bust, but, you know, it's either <laughs> going to work or it's not. And it's very sort of gung-ho with me. And, and whether it was because, well, what you got to lose? There's nothing to lose, is there? Mm. If you're quite delicately brought up and you've been told that you're marvellous, which you think is the best way, perhaps, to be brought up, I'm not sure that is either. You know, because then you you have Mm. such a high opinion of yourself that maybe you don't have to try. I've always had to try. I've had to work hard Mm. to get praise. So, you know, it wasn't an easy childhood. And I've written down a Mm. little story. I've never really told this story, but I thought this was quite telling. And I'm not sure I should tell it, but we were married. And we'd got our own little house in Leicester, but we we all sold our houses. My parents, my gran, we did. And we bought a hotel in Skegness in Lincolnshire between us. And, I mean, it was working, it was going very well, but we hated it, really. Didn't enjoy it because we weren't, we'd only been married about two years. One consequence of this behaviour and and parenting style towards you, Trish, seems to be a people-pleasing trait you developed Mm -hmm. in life. And you you said to me that you realise sometimes too late that you're a pleaser, you please others. Living on one's own, you please yourself. It's all very well being a giver, but there must be a balance. And this is something I've had to work through as well in scars of bullying and and being a people pleaser. I call myself a people pleaser in recovery. So unpack this for me in your perspective, in your experience. Yeah, a people pleaser. I've I've been called it like it's a, a, you know, it's an insult. Oh, you're a pleaser. Like it's some sort of insult. This is in the past. It's not now. I suppose being a pleaser comes from my upbringing, you know, that I was endlessly trying to please my parents. And I was. Always trying mm. to, never, nothing was ever really enough. So I was always trying to please them. 
I think that's the pattern that I learned then with friends. You know, to keep friends, you had to please them. I don't know what it was. There was always this other side to me. I think it maybe came from my dad, who got quite a quick temper. I don't mean in a physical way. It was never that. But he had quite a hot temper. And I, I've always had that. And it's maybe it served me quite well. But I've always had this thing about what's right. You know, this is right. The rights and wrongs. You know, very sort of correct in that way. You know, if it's wrong, it's wrong. No, no, absolutely. And that's right. So if something's wrong, I will have to speak out. Pleasing or not pleasing, I'll have to speak out. That kind of pointed me in a direction of slightly getting one foot off the people-pleasing endless monorail. I don't know when people-pleasing became a thing of the past. Even when I got my own business, I was still people-pleasing. You know, you had to, I had mm. to be But I was still people-pleasing. I wasn't perhaps turning off young members of staff the way I should have been telling them off when they were out there doing the shopping instead of what they were supposed to be doing. Little things like that. And, oh, it's okay, you know, whereas now... I mean, actually, the weird thing is that now I wouldn't be... I'd have to be a people pleaser now, wouldn't I? Because things have changed where I wouldn't be able to give them a verbal kick up the backside. <laughs> you can give me one when I step out of line, Trish, don't worry. <laughs> I think people-pleasing is a bad trait. It's a bad trait to have. But again, it's knowing yourself. I'm guessing that people know when they are people-pleasing but don't know how to get out of the trap and don't know how to stop being a people-pleaser. I don't know when I stopped being a people-pleaser. I think it was more when I completely lived on my own and became very selfish. I also think that being selfish is not such a bad thing. I think you need to have a little bit of selfishness self-preservation because otherwise yeah self-preservation there we go that's a better word yeah is it right self-preservation because selfish is quite a negative trait isn't it when you think about it but what you're describing for to me isn't selfishness it's just self-independence and pushing back against someone or people who try to take advantage of your good nature like that is what people pleasing does to you for me when i was people pleasing and i didn't realize i was doing it it was going over and above and beyond for people who didn't really care about me to try and make them feel better towards me and really when I realized they were never going to feel better towards me because I did that was were they so no and you find yourself people pleasing with the wrong people too don't you like you just said I found that I attracted the wrong people to me back in the day I've attracted the wrong people as it turned out it always took me a long while to figure out that they're the wrong people you hang on in there I think they're the people who have no self-awareness. So you, it's like being attracted to people who they don't have any self-awareness. I was still learning my self-awareness. They were never going to learn any. And it's kind of being attracted to them. Why that would be, maybe because they exercise charm. You know, I'm not talking about blokes. I'm talking about, you know, your female friends. You know, they, they would exercise a lot of charm. And I suppose that's always... An attraction, isn't it? So sorry. sorry. That's all right. That's all right. Now, wondering if to keep this in or not. Can I keep it in? Maybe. That's Lily. <laughs> I was just wondering aloud whether I keep that in the edit. Maybe. Um, Carry on. People pleasing. Does that, do they mm. still use that word, though? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's still a thing. Yeah, yeah. Is it a big thing? Because... 
I think a lot of people people please. It's a phenomenon that's not going to go away anytime soon. If you've gone through trauma and your reaction to it in your mind is to people please, then it's always going to be there. Like people are always going to do it. It's about how you realize you're doing it, how you come out of it and how you put healthy tools and boundaries in place to stop yourself doing it. Because I've spoken to a couple of guests about this, Trish, and you might have this experience that when I started putting in boundaries and pushing back against people where I was previously people pleasing, a lot of those people kind of turned their nose up a little bit and you realize who your true friends are, really. Mm, absolutely. Often it's a chap who will tell you that you're people pleasing. So it may be a, you know, a female who's told you, I, I don't know. It was at a job in the civil service in Leicester, actually, that I had. And I can't remember. Something had happened over the photocopier. And I was left being quite upset. I never, ever resort to tears, ever, in public. And I remember this young chap who'd not long joined. And he came in and he said, you try, I can't remember exact words, but it was something like, you try to please everybody. You try to please, you know, he'd only be about 22, 23. But then I wasn't much older. You try to please everybody. It just doesn't. And then he walked off. And I remember going, no, I don't. No, I don't. Because it felt like an insult. <laughs> Doesn't it? You're a people pleaser. No, I'm not. You are. I'm, I don't believe I am now. I really don't believe that I am mm. now. Sometimes I, we need to hear the ugly truth, Trish, in order to address it, don't we? Yes, yes, you do. I, absolutely. But the opposite of people pleasing isn't necessarily being selfish it is as we said self-preservation and it isn't necessarily being nasty you don't have to say no mm. you have to say you have to be able to say no that's it i couldn't say no do you want to go out tonight no i'd be going yes all right then i'm thinking then afterwards I'm thinking, oh god i really don't want to. and say no without giving a long convoluted white lie reason for it which i used to do and now i don't i'm just like no i'm not feeling it <laughs> don't want to be you yeah, because I give five minutes excuse as to why I couldn't go, which, you know, then they would find a way in. They'd find a way in through my excuse. <laughs> I'd end up going. But as you get older, you just don't go out so much. It's, it's very boring sometimes. I mean, well, probably won't be where you live, but it is here. No, yeah. no, it's, 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 almost the same. it's almost the same for me, Trish, as well. No, I don't go anywhere oh, no. near as much out as I used to. Oh, I don't know about that. But I think, yeah, people-pleasing. Don't do it. I want to talk about a conversation you had, a very important conversation you had now with your business partner in your previous okay. dog grooming business because you told me a story about when she opened up to you about her mental health and then because she did that, you did the same. So just tell me about that story and also how it helped both of your individual mental healths and I guess possibly your professional relationship after that point too. Hmm. It's many, many years ago, and we'd sold the hotel. We decided we would stay in Skegness, and I'm glad we did. It was it was a great place to live at the time. I don't know if you know it, Freddie. Uh, I've never been to Skegness, no. <laughs> I can't say I have. Okay, polite. Anyway, we got a dog trimming business, me and her, and she's died now, bless her, but wonderful woman. And we ran it from the back of their garage, her husband had sort of kitted out the back of their garage into this dog trimming parlour. And she was terrific at the job and taught me everything. I could still do it. I could set up in dog trimming now if I wanted to. Anyway, there we were, very, very busy. We were the only dog trimmers for miles around. 
So we got everybody, we got all the business people's poodles and the lot. And we were having a break in between dogs and we were having not a great time in our marriage. And I was, I don't know, it all just came blurting out. I don't know if she'd said something about their relationship in a, in a sort of very light way. And maybe she sensed that I needed to talk. And out it all came, all the, um, and I, mean, I won't say what it was because, you know, somebody else is involved. And out it all came. And, you know, part of it is because we were still young and we were still fairly newly married in a way. And it's the very first time I'd ever spoken ever in my life about me and how I felt and you know how various bits and points in my life affected me had affected me and particularly how this relationship was affecting me and and then you couldn't shut me up you couldn't stop me Mary left I just didn't know how to stop me but anyway we spoke and she listened she was amazing and uh, she got kids of her own and by the time we finished we carried on we finished the, the dogs and I remember driving home or biking home or whichever form of transport and feeling this sense of huge relief and weight being lifted. Never having spoken like that before in my life to anybody. The problem was then she got it all the time. You know, I, I she must have been thinking, oh, not again. Um, and, you know, she would have a very polite way of kind of closing it down because, you know, you couldn't go on and on about it. But then as I sort of got friends, I was able to just start the narrative about how I felt and they would come back with how they, you know, you started conversations. Women did that. Still do, I suppose. I don't know if men do it so much, but, oh, he's, he's an idiot. He's this, he's that, he's, you know, and off goes the other one. You know, and that is what we do. If, if you want to know what we're doing, guys, that's what we're doing. We're talking about you. Um, um, but this was, you know, this was quite deep. It was deep for me. It was how I was, I was feeling very unhappy at the time in this marriage. It got better and it got better because I'd spoken to them. And I tried to speak to him. That wasn't so easy. I think men of that generation just hadn't learnt at all how to open up and speak and... Today's young women are much luckier because, you know, they've got people like yourself who are open and, you know, are happy to talk things through. We didn't have that. So it didn't really go on at home, but I was able to talk to her and then other friends. And I just sensed this overwhelming relief. It was like a great load being mm. lifted. Oh, I can go into work and talk mm. to Mary again, which wasn't really the way to do it. But, you know. But it, kind of, <laughs> you had someone to to turn the release valve to yeah. vent to let off some steam. Yeah, it's always a good turn of phrase, Freddie. Yes, you have. Yes, I guess it did. It taught me how to open up, and then yeah, I couldn't stop. Then I found this was a terrific release, opening up to people. I mean, I didn't walk down the street opening up to people, like, you know, to friends, <laughs> to friends, and and you know they would respond, and you got advice from them, you know, so you were giving each other advice and so on. And, it was massive for me. And I think that was on the road then to so a certain little step or two on the road to self-awareness. You know, mm. I would start to have my conversations. Oh, well, that was good. Didn't you? What did Mary say? I don't know. What do you think about that? And that's how I talk to myself. You know, I ask myself a question and answer it. And isn't, mm. don't we all do that? You know, you, you spoke about, you said you, you talk to yourself. 
doesn't everybody talk to themselves? <laughs> I like to think so sometimes, but maybe 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 not all people. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, I thought everybody... Sometimes when I'm watching a TV show now, like, like I'll say something during the show, like when an important moment happens. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm fucking insane, you but... Just, you no, yeah. You <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. Or like, if it's like a shocking moment, I'll be like, oh, I wasn't expecting that to happen. And I'm like, who am I talking to here? Yeah, <laughs> just like myself. <laughs> well, it's good. Before we move on and reflect on your mental health continued journey, Trish, you mentioned something in your brief quite a few times which is gaslighting yeah. so just tell me for the listeners and me I know what it means but the list some of the listeners might not what that means first of all as a definition and how does that relate to your mental health journey well gaslighting is you know when you read about stuff and the first one I read was M. Scott Peck The Road Less Travelled I think we all did that because there was something wrong in the relationship I was was in and I didn't know what it was. And when I read that, I realised what was kind of happening. And again, it's something I'd never... Most of us weren't really into psychotherapy and what does it mean? What is all this wordage? And gaslighting, basically, I mean, I'm no expert, but it appears to mean, as far as I can see, and from my own experience, it seems to mean that, that there's somebody who's not that mentally stable, somebody else, who... Is probably jealous of you. You've got something maybe that they want. So they're going to put their faults on you. So they're going to accuse you, basically, in a way of being what they are. So let's say that's mm. how I've found it to be. I think it's come from a very old film with Ingrid Bergman in, I think. Yes, um, called Gaslighting. Yeah. yeah. So, so for the listeners who haven't seen it, I've not seen it myself, but I know the concept of the plot. So it's about a man and a woman, and they both have a, a series of gaslights in their house. And the woman keeps going mad because she thinks someone is turning them down or turning them off, I think. And it's what he's doing. And mm. he keeps saying, no, you're going mad. And this is actually all in your head, whereas actually he's the one doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah which is a similar sort of thing. So, it's, you know, I'm describing something that's much broader than, than what I said, but it's it's a way of making you feel as if you're going mad and it's a way of making other people think that, oh, she's going balmy, you know, she's absolutely balmy, when it's it's actually somebody else. I think the word narcissist is slung around all over the place nowadays and actually narcissist is, I think, from what I gather, a very, very serious... It's a, dis it's a disorder. It can be a narcissistic personality disorder, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's narcissistic and then there's narcissist, mm -hmm. I think. And narcissistic... Mm -hmm. as well, healthy dose of narcissism if you're a top business person might be good or a pop star yeah <laughs> if you need yeah, do you need that to get to the top star, yeah you know to get yeah. on stage probably but narcissism in an ordinary relationship or any relationship is bad because you're making the other person feel it, it's controlled to a certain extent as well i think it's controlling somebody it's quite serious but how you actually most narcissists or narcissism is expertly practiced i would say and people who indulge in it are probably quite expert at it and you probably won't know that you're being gaslit and you know to begin with i mean it's, it's a lot more all over the place now to the point where it's maybe over tipped and everybody's gaslighting everybody else which is not entirely true yeah, and then the term becomes meaningless doesn't it yeah, yeah. yes exactly which is getting towards that but it's, it's certainly happened to me a few times. 
I can honestly say that. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things where in like political discussions, for example, someone could say, oh, you're gaslighting me. You're actually just disagreeing with them. And then that actually demeans the term. And when it actually does happen in, like you say, relationships and quite toxic relationships, then the term becomes meaningless and people can get away with doing it because they just say, oh, you're just overreacting and stuff like that. Mm. Yes, yes. You you are put in the corner as the bad person. When it's not, you're standing there thinking, well, I haven't done anything. Have I I done something? No, but it's him. Then you start to really question yourself. Yeah. You do you question yourself, and I think it was when I read his book because I'd seen I'd seen an excerpt of it in one of the daily tabloids years ago. I went and bought his book, Scott Peck, and I remember reading the part about narcissism and so on, and thinking that's definitely describing person. That's concerning. That then I went on getting loads and loads of books about psychotherapy and all these disorders and one thing or another. It was kind of like I could major in psychotherapy now. I've got so many books and I've read so many of them. I don't now. But because it becomes a fascinating subject and because you want to try and understand maybe other people's personalities, you know, their little defects, their little traits, etc. But you can't label other people. You know, it's not for me to go around labelling other people and say, well, she's a narcissist, psychopath. That's a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Good, yeah, you don't have PhD at the end of your name, Trish, unfortunately, <laughs> to do that. <laughs> well, it might stand for something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. I want to reflect on your mental health journey continued now, Trish, before we move on. So what has this part taught you about yourself? I think it's taught me to be harder. I think you harden up as you get older anyway, quite often, but... It's taught me to be very, very comfortable in my own company. That's a very good mental health stability pointer, that one. I think if you're very comfortable, if you can live with yourself and be very comfortable with your own company, it's not to say to get too comfortable so you don't want anybody, but I think if you're very comfortable with yourself, then I think that's sort of staying, you're quite stable. You like yourself. You've got to like yourself, haven't you? So I like myself now. I've decided I quite like myself. I don't mean in, in, a, in some sort of big-headed way. I, I mean, I, I'm comfortable with myself. I'm happy with myself. I think I'm all right. If somebody came along and, you know, eloquently was were able to, like you say, came along and went, oh, just a little thing, just something you maybe need to know about yourself, Trish. You know, I'd listen. I would listen. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of tipping over into I think I'm perfect. I, I just feel that my mental health at the moment feels reasonably stable. It doesn't take a lot, though, to tip somebody's mental health into unstable. It really doesn't take a lot. Even for me, who's older and and can deal with things and have been through things, it doesn't take much. What we call today's mental health, maybe issues, can be suddenly being afraid, suddenly being in a panic suddenly being quite paranoid i mean that's an Mm. easy one to to go into it's paranoia if you're not careful but i don't go to the doctors about stuff you know should i i don't know i'm always nervous about going to the doctors with any sort of what you would term mental health issues i've been feeling depressed say i've been nervous about going to the gp now is that wrong you tell me should it should i 
I don't think you should be nervous. I think you've got a lot of self-awareness and you can realise when a period of sadness is sadness or something worse and when it is depression. And I think you've got a good understanding of the difference between the two. And if it gets worse and it doesn't pass, then obviously you would probably need to go see your GP. But if you have the tools in place and you know it's temporary, then I'm sure you could do it without needing to, to do that. Does that make sense? Yes, because depression is mental health, isn't it? I mean, serious mm. depression, you would turn... Yeah, clinical depression is, is mental illness, yeah, yeah. Well, then what about depression, young people and feeling depressed today? Is that, yeah. is that what they term mental health? Because I wouldn't call that mental Yeah, that's health. when the lines start to get blurred because they might view that as depression, whereas actually it might just be a depressive period and it might not be a symptom of a clinical depression disorder to be precise so that's when the lines get blurred and that's when education needs to come in and say actually no not everything you're feeling is is symptom of a condition what you're feeling is natural it's what loads of humans go through it's what natural emotions are sometimes we all go through the ups and downs of life if something is very serious and obviously it needs to be diagnosed and it obviously needs to be checked out but it might not always be that and you need to know the difference that's quite a lot of education there then isn't it for young people they need to know the difference well it is isn't it you know because Mm. while you were talking and we'd spoken a little bit about Christmas and New Year and I've realized having spent quite a lot of time on my own now that I enjoy being on my own and I moan about Christmas and New Year and it's more to do with the fact that so many people just ignore a person on their own now you know whereas back in the day you know, it would be, oh, come and join us. You know, when you don't want them, you would say, oh, just come and join us for a few hours. That doesn't happen. So that's the thing that hacks me off. Anyway, on the other hand, I wouldn't want to go. Uh, but I want to be asked. So we spent Christmas and New Year, the dog and I, on our own. It was okay. It wasn't great, Freddie, if I'm honest. It actually wasn't great. And I think it wasn't great because I felt unwanted i had loads of zooms and had a lot of phone calls and it was yourself and you know it was lovely to hear from you i mean you're a very kind person but i could have easily i think drifted into that's why i'm sorry thinking about depression you know am is this depression am i feeling depressed or am i just feeling a bit lonely mm. at Christmas and new year it's a mm. horrible time sometimes i wish they'd do away with it because it's great for the families. It's, it's great for families, but it's horrible for people who are on their own. And mm. I don't see there's any provision made, really, for people who are completely on their own. Go off and enjoy Christmas and New Year, families. The rest of you? Nothing to do with us. And there we all are, all of us, on our own. You know, and, and you know, the answer isn't, oh, well, join up together. You can't geographically that's not possible i just wonder really it, it's a subject matter another one that i've got on my list to, to actually talk about not now but but i did get depressed over christmas and new year i have to say i got very low at one point over christmas and new year even though i was getting phone calls and zooms and things on boxing day i was walking lily it was quite miserable weather here and we mm. passed one or two couples, young couples, either on their own or walking their dog. 
and it's not very often I feel this, but I felt so obvious, just me and the dog walking on our own. They were very nice. They all stopped and spoke. You know, they were they were lovely people. But they had each other, and and then I, you know, I carried on. I thought, yeah, but one time, you know, I had a partner, or well, a partner. You know, I had somewhere most of my life. I've had somebody, but I don't know how to explain times like Christmas and New Year, and sometimes birthdays. It's easy to say, or just go away. Going away on your own at Christmas, it's okay. I can do it with her, but. It costs an absolute fortune for one person on their own. It costs as much for me as it costs for a family of six. I wouldn't know what to do. It was at that point when I was feeling, I suppose I would say depressed, and on and off leading up to Christmas, that I did think, should I go to the GP? Should I? Is this leading into depression? And should I go to the GP? I'm all no. right. Because the last thing I want to do is go and get antidepressants. But I don't think I particularly need them. But it's easy to to drift into that rather desperate feeling of, of sudden loneliness. And mm. if you don't get hold of it, it will it will last. And then it becomes dangerous, I think. I want to talk now, Trish, about the work you've continued to do, the amazing work that you continue to do through your wonderful blog, Just Me and Lily, and the assorted opportunities you've had to talk about it because of the work that you do. Hopefully, you've had a couple of opportunities since the podcast. I can't, can't take too much credit. But what have you got up to since we last chatted? And what's this journey been like since we chatted too? Well, see, I've not been going that long on Just Me and Lily. I've only been going really for about... A year and a half, something like that, maybe, barely a year and a half. And when I chatted to you, you know, it was the first podcast I'd done. I've done various things since then. So I think you maybe opened the doors, Freddie, there. <laughs> it, no, take credit. Anyway, I started it, as you know, we've been through all that. You know, I started it, COVID, da, da, da. It's incredibly therapeutic. If you like mm. writing, it's really therapeutic. What happens though, everything sort of multiplies. So there's then Twitter, there's Instagram. Oh, you've got to join LinkedIn. Why? Join LinkedIn. <laughs> um, no idea why. Something else now I'm on. I can't remember what it is. Various bits and pieces all over the place. Facebook page. I can't keep up with it. You know, I can't keep up with all of it. <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? It's a whole job in itself. <laughs> it is a lot. And hey, there's me and her. Out on photo shoots, which I love. That's my favourite bit, actually, just doing a photo shoot. It's so funny. But I love the writing. I love doing it. I love doing my blog. I worry that I'm, you know, oh, I should be having thousands on Instagram. <laughs> well, I won't have, because it's a very specific subject. So it's not going to reach everybody. Yes. It's not, is it? You know, it's... It's quite a... I don't have thousands on Instagram, Trish, and I've been doing this for five bloody years, so... <laughs> well, there's no hope. It's hard. It? It's hard to build. I... Do you know what I no, think? No, no, don't say that. There's not no hope. I'm just saying it's difficult. I know it's difficult, yeah. I think I think a lot of people might buy some of their um, likes. <laughs> oh, 100%. There's a lot of famous people. Oh, oh do you that, do yeah. agree. Yes, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. It just makes me feel better if I say that. But social media is great. I've met so many people through social media. I really have, you know, like yourself and so many others. 
through social media. It's been fantastic. Nobody can say it's not a good thing. It is a good thing. It has its drawbacks, I suppose. But the only drawback for me and just me and Lily is that it's taking up so much time. And I almost need to <laughs> almost need to employ somebody to come and help me. <laughs> can you do Twitter for me? You know, can you do Instagram for me or something? I said, I can't find time to do it all. It's, you know, I'm much mm. slower. Now I'm older, I'm much slower at mm. doing stuff. So, and then to have to go out and spend an afternoon once or twice a week doing a photo shoot with her, you know, is, is enjoyable, but takes up a hell of a lot of time. Mm. You know, it's wearing the right dress. It's everything, you know, it's what, what do I wear? <laughs> oh, bathing and brushing her. It's great. But what it's brought is... I never expected it to bring the attributes that it's brought, really. And, you know, as, as you were saying, that various things have happened where you get invited. And I don't think it's not just me. You know, other people do. If they're on certain websites or if they're known about, they will get invites onto various steering groups and focus groups and so on. And I can't really say who they are because they're still going, these groups, and they're, so they still haven't, you know, summed up what the whole process is going to be. But it's ageing groups, it's sometimes part of the NHS, big housing groups, you know, money's been given to local councils, some local councils to build new hospitals. I think we have that, I think, in Lincolnshire. So that was a very interesting group, that one. And housing for older people, which always involves co-housing, which I can't stand the thought of, co-housing, but I suppose that's how I'll end up. And, And talking about how we want to see things certain things say in the nhs how we would want them to be with regard for helping the aging and helping older people and and so on it's everything really to do with aging the only thing is they a lot of people call aging over 50s now i've got an issue with that because i think when, when i was over in my 50s i was still having a really good time i, I, I never thought <laughs> Maybe over 60s, I don't know, but it's very, very good that these things are in place to discuss ageing and taking ageing seriously and taking it seriously in as much as how are we going to cope, how is social care and HS, all these people going to cope with the, you know, the growing ageing population that we have. And, you know, my answer to that will be, I say it here, it's not the panacea for all ills, but... I do think it's communities. Communities is such a big word that has to be somehow instigated and it has to be supported and they have to happen. Mm. And preventative medicine. Get people looking after themselves a little bit more than they do with exercise and diet and so on. Yes. Uh, You know, you can do a lot more. To retain their independence and to stop them relying on the state, which is already under increasing pressure and doesn't seem to be getting any more help anytime soon. I mean, it doesn't help that it's, you know, it's, it's the ageing that's taking up all this space and money. You know, we're getting, we're getting blamed mm. for that. I have to say that I really enjoy sitting on these groups, and I didn't think I would. And they usually take up to an hour, two hours. And you have to be able to get onto Zoom, and a lot of them can't. You know, so you've got this process where you're helping get little Mary onto Zoom, you know, because she can't do it again. <laughs> that's, that's old for you. But I think they're very important and, you know, I hope that we have an impact on government. Hmm. I think you are and I think you will, Trish. And this part of the conversation is going to be about the issues that you cover and the topic of involuntary 
childlessness. And we were speaking off air about what we wanted to cover here. And the first one is, there is, of course, a difference, as you rightly say, between someone who chooses to be child free, rather than someone who tries to conceive but can't and ends up becoming childless. However, in your experience, and from speaking to probably loads of women as you do from all ages, do you think there are some women in the former who will end up changing their mind too late and finding themselves in the latter? I think there probably will be. Whether they'll admit to that, I don't know. Mm. Because when we had our AWOC links group, the Asian Without Children, and we started a Lincolnshire group, which has unfortunately gone by the wayside. We won't go into that, but it kind of has. But I sort of keep it going, if I can, with my Just Me and Lily stuff and anything I can get out there. And, and there's various people in local council who, if there's an ageing group starting up, they will ask me to, to join. So I think that's probably more important for me that, you know, I've got a foot in the door with regard to any potential policy. And what we got was quite a lot of child-free people who, instead of saying, I've, 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 you know, I, I wish I hadn't done that, they suddenly, an awful lot, I don't know. I don't know if I'm child-free or childless. You, should, you must know. There's an awful lot of them. I don't know. I don't know why we didn't have it. It just didn't happen. I just don't believe it. I can't. I'm sorry, but I can't buy into that. You either Mm. want them or you can't have them or, you know, whichever one it is. Do you think it's like a bit of denial or kind of shame or stigma that they feel that they, you know, they did something that they regret and they don't want to admit to it? Is that fair? It's possibly that. I think as well that the childless group are probably getting more attention if you like, because we can't have them. And it's more of a story, if you like, isn't it? Yeah, it's a biological issue rather than a social choice, if that makes sense. Well, yes, it is. Definitely is. And the social choice will be made for all sorts of reasons. All sorts of reasons. Yes. Um, Many reasons, which they could change their mind on. I I think if they change their mind on, I don't think they'd admit it. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I don't actually Mm -hmm. think they would say, I wish I'd not decided on this there may be one or two out there I've never come across them they seem mm. very happy with their decision or that's what they say and and good they seem happier than the childless is what I can say but the childless are not always that happy with what we've been given and the other thing I want to sort of say is and, and highlight is I just wish there were more men that came forward mm. to join the groups you know we've got Robin the wonderful Robin and friend of the pod great man yeah yeah, you know, Robin very well, don't you? I mean, mm. he, he's out there doing a lot of it on his own. There was Michael Hughes and... Um, <laughs> yeah, he's almost the only man. Yeah, genuinely. There's somebody else that will come to me in a minute. But, you know, they are, you know, the main people. Because it is, a you know, it's not just women who are childless, as men too. And, you know, I feel quite strongly about that one. That they're kind of ignored and shouldn't be. But childlessness is has hit me again as I've got older. It's really hit me. It was fine. I you know, got over it. And we were having a great time, working hard, playing hard, having a great time. And then as I'm you know, now on my own, completely on my own, and I'm in the last part of my life, and it feels so sad now. The sadness has, has, has hit me like a runaway truck, really. At one point, it really did. You know, and I was, I was just thinking... I'll never hold a baby again. A little incident happened, which just, I think it kind of triggered it, really. It was me and the dog. We were walking. 
you know, walk around here somewhere. And she was off a lead and round the corner came this dog. So they met. They romped off. Mum, young mum, is puffing away behind trying to get the dog. And she's got this tiny baby strapped in a harness to her front. Anyway, the dogs came back. We both bent down to put leads on. And as we were bending down, little baby, which was facing that way, so I had a permanent look of startled, really, was coming towards me, this baby, in this harness, as we were bending down. We sort of met. And this little baby sort of chuckled at me, this little gummy smile, and put a little hand out. Right. That was it. We carried on with our walk. I was welling up. I was welling up. I was really sort of in tears over this. And I'll never hold another baby again. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I won't, you know, unless somebody reads about this and goes, oi, here's one. Um, not going to happen, is it? It feels just something else that you have to get used to and you have to live with as a childless person that is, is kind of silent. Nobody knows all this. Nobody knows that we're shoved to the back of the queue and without that much of a voice and we need to have so much more of a voice I feel mm, so I'm just um that's maybe quite you asked me something uh, else about childless um you asked me something else about childless and I was trying to look and you did and, and you're I've just got to, I've just got to compose I've just got to compose myself emotionally hang on a sec I'll ask the next question I'll leave that? this I'll leave this in you asked me something else about childlessness, or I said something else when I was writing it. So my next question, Trish, and this will probably be you answering it and figuring out what that was you were looking for, is the factors behind why so many more women are choosing to remain child-free versus mm. trying but ultimately not being able to conceive. So, for example, and this is just me spitballing, I'm not saying these are the reasons, I'm just asking you if you think these are or there are other reasons. So is it a fear of the process of childbirth, which is obviously very traumatic for many women? Back in the past, many women used to die from childbirth. Is mm. it a greater focus on women's careers, the rise of liberal feminism, which has kind of pushed that? And a feeling that motherhood, especially early motherhood, means that they lose out socially on a life that they want to keep. Mm. Is the sexual revolution a factor like author Louise Perry writes about in her book? What are the factors that you've experienced from your expertise and from the women that you've spoken to? Well, if you read various blogs and various writings on the Aging Without Children Facebook page, for instance, the child free are quite prominent on there. You know, and their voices are quite loud. And their voices tend to be metaphorically loud rather than the childless because it's great. It's fantastic. We're going to be able to grow up. We can do what we want. We can go around the world. I was talking to a friend who was a social worker and she seems to have some sort of experience of some of this. She feels a lot of it could be, well, then anyway, whether it is now, is, is fear of the actual process of giving birth. And that could be, there's a lot of programmes on at the moment with Emma Willis, isn't there? I've not really watched them, but, you know, it's, it, it never One seems to be... One born every a, minute, A&E, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it never seems to just slip out, you know. <laughs> that might put some women off, you know, that might be if they're frightened of the, the sort of pain of it, it could put some women off, and I suppose you could understand that. It's also losing their lifestyle. And a friend of mine who's got young daughters, they've already decided they don't want children at quite a young age. 
they're adamant. And anyway, they're going to adopt. If they have any, they'll adopt. And I've heard that somewhere. Wow. I've heard that with younger people. They're going to adopt. Not going to have a partner. It's going to adopt on their own. It's very hard to adopt. The adoption system, I'm, I'm told, is, is very bureaucratic and very hard to actually complete the process. I know that. We tried all those years ago. Most people get turned down. Um, they're probably thinking abroad, but you'd have to pay, I think, there. I mean, that's not easy either. Yeah, unless you're Madonna or Angelina Jolie. <laughs> well, yes, yes. And we're not. <laughs> I find it quite... Sometimes I get annoyed about it. I get annoyed about it because I wanted kids so much. We did. We wanted children so much. And most people I know who are childless are the same. They wanted children suddenly. Some of them never really get over it. And then people saying and so happy with the fact that they probably could have them, but they just don't want them. I do struggle a bit with it. I, I make no secret of it. You know, I do struggle with that. Respect the decision totally. They've thought it through. They must have done. But I don't fully get it. Because, you see, I thought that it was a biological urge to have children. That's what I thought. I thought that's what it was all about. Nothing's changed from Stone Age. Men and women <laughs> have children, you know. And now, well, it has changed from it now. But people go out and they want children. And, you know, because it's just to continue the human race, really. I mean, that's another subject, isn't it? I struggle a little bit with it in answer to, to your question, Freddie, as to mm. only why, but the reasons given are that they want to continue their life, they don't want to have to spend out for a kid, they don't want to be lumbered mm. with a kid, they probably don't want to go through the whole birth process of having a child. Yeah, I, I also read recently of the growing number of women, I don't think there's as many men, but the growing number of women who are doing solo IVF, so getting a child but not needing the husband to do it which I mean I'm, I'll need to do more research on the numbers and I guess form my own opinion on whether I agree with it or not but yeah I, I, I was completely in the dark about it and that seems to be a growing number of women who are doing that and I just think there's a lot to unpack there. Well it is I don't see how that's healthy because life is what it is isn't it you know it is what it is we are kind of here to procreate and produce kids to keep them world going and the idea being it may sound old-fashioned to people now but you know the idea being that there's two people there's two people to bring up the child whatever sex you're that gives them the best chance doesn't it statistically i mean it's an uncomfortable truth for many people but yeah whether it's a mum or a dad or whether it's two dads or two mums statistically two people are normally the best at giving the child the best life chances i I think so it's more stable I, i would have thought but then you know you have to be careful. You have to be careful what you say. You know, you do, as long, yeah, unfortunately. As long as a child has a good upbringing and the child is loved. The main thing is that the child is loved. Mm. One parent, two parents, as long as it's loved and it's looked after. That's the main thing. It's just that I'm older and I'm slightly old-fashioned in that way that I feel it's, it's something that surely women want to do, don't they? Apparently not. Well, there you go. That's a conversation for another day and something something I don't really have as much expertise on for sure. One thing I do want to ask you about, Trish, is the UK is one example, but there are various countries where this this phenomenon is much more extreme at either end. So, for example, a country like South Korea is going to be in big, big trouble soon when it comes to their birth rate. They have the world's lowest birth rate. They just spent 200 billion on a, what's the right phrase, publicity drive to increase the birth rate, but to little avail. 
whilst having one of the world's largest aging populations. And that is going to be falling off a cliff soon when it comes to the difference in in age groups. But you've also got a country like Hungary, which is very authoritarian, very dictatorial, run by Viktor Orban, very homophobic in its treatment of gay people, but it gives massive tax incentives for families, for people to, to have kids. So what is your perspective here? Is this a case of governments needing to seriously wake up and radically change childcare policy to actually provide an incentive for people to have kids? Because right now in this country, I feel we've got the housing crisis, so you can't buy a house for most people. You've got the cost of living crisis. Food is 13.2% inflation and a whole host of other factors. So actually, for most people, it's probably financially, at least, they would see it counterproductive to have children because there's not a lot of incentives to do it. Yeah, I, I totally get that. You know, I understand that. You know, we go on to a whole different subject of, you know, oh, it's all right for you old people now. It's OK for you. It was all right in your day. I mean, it wasn't all right in our day. You know, it wasn't. It was still hard in our day. It was not easy in our day. We just get over that one. It wasn't. Neither generation is going to fully understand the other, are they? We can say, oh, I can Mm. see how it's probably quite hard for young people. We're never really going to fully understand how hard it is. And young people are never going to fully understand that it was actually hard for us too. Different factors. Because generations change and because needs and wants change, because expectations change, then younger people, couples, they will probably think there's no room for We just don't have financial room or room or we haven't got a house. Where are we going to? live with this baby you know it's a decision that yeah it's it's now becoming the norm to not have a child to decide to not have a child and you know we're going to have that problem in this country if we're not careful where there's too much of an aging society and not enough babies being born which is really Mm. concerning i don't think we're there Mm. yet but you know to to sort of comment on the who can afford what it's quite hard for me to do that because i'm not young The only Mm. thing I say is it's not that easy being old, just saying it's not that easy, it's not that comfy being old. Some people, yeah, they do have the big pensions, but not everybody does. And we had to make do with things when we were younger. So maybe do they make do with things now when they're younger? Or, you know, do they still want the Mm. big holidays? And I'm just saying that's all. I don't want to cause an argument, but, you know, are they? No, don't worry. Don't worry, Trish, you won't. You've also got movements now which are actually anti-natalist in principle. So, for example, there's a climate change movement group called Birth Strikers, which was sourced in a a Guardian article in 2019 where there was a group of women who were stating that they didn't want to bring a child into the world because of climate change. So I want to actually dive into what little perhaps statistics there are at the moment about involuntarily childless people Trish men and women and you spoke to me about two people Kirsty Woodard the founder of Aging Without Children UK and Professor Mo Ray of Lincoln University who presented this in the House of Lords recently so what did they present and just give the listeners a bit of a flavour of the numbers that are currently out there well we don't really have I'm not sure we have current numbers and that's the problem you know and Kirsty has gone on about that for a while what Mo did what Professor Mo did at Lincoln Uni she did, she's had research there and other things, but she undertook and got funding to research the ageing population in this area here where I live in Lincolnshire. 
and it just sort of showed, I suppose, an overview that if it rolled out into the rest of the country would be that there's an awful lot of older people just living on their own without anyone at all, not just childless, but just on their own without any backup or support. But when they went to the House of Lords, because Baroness Andrews, I think it was, who is the committee chairman for the social care and adult, the adult and social care bill, it was being presented yes. to the House of Lords. And I think Kirsty was invited as the founder of AWOC, Aging Without Children, to go. I don't know if Mo went, or if Mo Ray went, or if Kirsty took Mo's statistics and research um, statistics mm. that, that Mo did. But certainly it was taken notice of. I think it was the Telegraph who wrote a piece all about it afterwards. And Baroness Andrews did actually say that in this report, we've revealed the impact that the invisibility of the adult social care sector as a whole has on the way we perceive and provide for adult social care. And consequently, people ageing without children can be left without support and help at a time when they need it most. So it was certainly taken notice of. And it's estimated that there are over, over 4 million people who have no one to look after them. They're estimating that by about 2020. No, not 2020, 2040. 2030. 40, sorry, yeah. Well, they sling so many figures around, but they're estimating because nobody's actually really got up-to-date figures with regard to ageing without children. It doesn't seem to have been... And that's the any- problem, yeah. So it estimates there are already 1.2 million over 65s without children. So estimating that. I reckon it could be more. Set to rise to... 2 million by the end of this decade and to double again to reach 4 million by 2040. So the gap in between and demand and supply means as many as 2.6 million people have unmet needs, meaning they're left without any choice of help when they get older. So it means almost certainly going into a care home because there is nobody, there's no family to nip in and look after them and so on. And none of that's happening now, I'm sure. With regard to other, I couldn't find any more stats, actually. And the stats mm. that I would find, I can tell you, wouldn't be up to date because there are very few up-to-date stats. This has been Kirsty's beef for a while, I know. You know, there needs mm. to be. I'm not sure when they say there's 2.6 million people estimating there's 2.6 million people have all oh, that to be unmet needs, but there's 1.2 million people over 65 without children estimating. I reckon there's more than that possibly without children. Mm. That's just the ones they know about. It's a lot. And there's going to be a lot, lot more. If people are choosing not to have children, there's going to be a lot of people without children, whether it's childless or child-free, because they're including that. Mm. Well, when they're saying without children, that's not just like me. That's people who've chosen to not have children. But it's what happens when we get older, as I am, and you need support. Because it's all right saying, oh, my family are 100 miles away anyway. Yeah, but you've got a family. You know, you do have a family on the end of the phone, Zoom, WhatsApp, FaceTime, whatever. You do have a family. And they can come down to see you. They are there to help. When you've got nobody, you know, you don't have that safety net at all who is there to advocate for you you know and off we go again i think the statistic my own feeling is i think they need to actually do up-to-date statistics on this 
it's surely going to help them with regard to the NHS and care home. These people are going to need looking after probably more than people who have children or have, yeah, who have children who are there to maybe not look after them, but support them. You know, we are there with nobody. Mm. We're the ones in hospital who are taking up beds because we can't go home because there's nobody at home to look after us. So we have to stay in hospital and saying, mm. well, the childless often are taking up hospital beds. I'm sorry to say that, but, you know, we know we are and we shouldn't be. It's because there's mm. nobody there at home. That's the situation. It's not good. Yeah. It's, it's a not really, going to get better. It's, it's, a, it's, a sad, it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah. And there's a current social care crisis, if you want to use the word, but with what you're saying, it's only going to get worse if that trend continues for sure i want Mm. to reflect now on this advocacy journey continued before we finish trish so first of all i'm sure you've got a very long answer to this so what change or changes do you want to see in 2023 when it comes to helping or supporting people who are involuntarily childless including yourself i just want it to be mainstream So I want it to be conversation. There are various, you know, there have been journals. Can I say the names of, I mean, The Guardian in particular has been quite a supportive Mm -hmm. paper with regard to childlessness, The Telegraph. We need more support. We need more coverage in terms of childlessness. It doesn't matter. Childless, child-free, we have nobody to support us. The only thing I say there is I think the childless probably get more support, right? So... People need to know about us. I want to see us as a group of people out there being known about. I want to see us being talked about at local council level. And I think in terms of us here, I think we are being, because I know several people there who are starting groups for ageing and I get invited on. You know, the more groups I'm on, the more I can open my mouth about the childless situation. So I want to see some sort of, even if it's just talking about how we're going to support ageing and childlessness or ageing and alone. Bear in mind, sometimes it can be disability, it can be mental health, and all right, they don't have children, but that can, you know, they're alone. It's being alone and ageing without any support that we need to really, really grind down into and look at the numbers and what are we going, what are they going to put in place? rather than just shoving us in care homes or a bed at the NHS, which is not what they want either. Or are they planning on just killing us off? I mean, you know, what are they going to do? Because we are going to become a problem and an issue. And I want to see this issue now faced and talked about and heading its way towards proper government level. I mean, Mm. the other thing I looked at, I did look at the Equality Act, 2010 Equality Act, and there was a part, there was one part, I think it's part 19, and I, now I can't remember it, and I was supposed to write it down. But I thought, I'm sure we could get in there. I'm sure we could get in there. I know it has to be characteristics, and we don't particularly have characteristics, but we feel as if we're not included. We're mm. just not included in the narrative at all, in any narrative. We're not considered, and we're not included. It is all about families. And it isn't all about families. It's about people who don't have any families. And I just want to see us out there in the mainstream. And as a final question, Trish, what has this part of your advocacy journey taught you about yourself and what do you hope to personally achieve with it in the future? What do I want to achieve? 
I suppose it's not for some sort of egotistical reasons. It's it's really not, you know, it's not for making it the same to paper. I feel so strongly about the fact that families are great. I love I don't I love families, but there is outside the family situation and there's us. There's ageing without children, there's childlessness, there's child free. But there's us who have no support, no family. I just want to see that as a group, as a, as a recognised, acknowledged group of people so that we don't have to keep going around explaining ourselves or feeling embarrassed about explaining ourselves. I want it to be talked about. I want it to feel normal to be talked about. And, I mean, it has to be, doesn't it? If there's so many more childless people coming onto the scene, it's going to have to be talked about, surely. It's going to have to be. And I'd like to be somewhere in the conversation, if possible, because I do feel that I am... I hope you're leading it, Trish. I hope you're leading it. (laughs) That'd be unlikely. I I don't think I have the... Not sure I I, I quite have the... Well, um, if I've got anything to say about it, it will. (laughs) I just feel I'm proper childless. That's all. I I do. I am proper child... You know, I epitomise childlessness in a way. You know, I'm ageing. I have nobody you know, nobody at all. And, you know, I'm willing to talk about it. I don't think there's anything too much off limits. Other people are involved and I can't really name names and, and talk too much. But if it's all to do with me, then, I, I, you know, I'm quite open about the subject and want to see it opened up as a subject. And if I can be in there talking about it, I'd very much like to be. And on that note, Trish, Thank you so much for coming back on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. It has been a wonderful conversation. I always enjoy chatting with you and I'm very pleased to have had you back on to talk about this very important issue. And like I said, I hope you are very much leading the conversation in the future. Thank you very much, Freddie. And thank you for asking me. It's been brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. A massive thank you to my friend Trish for coming back on the pod to talk about her journey and for letting me check back in with her. I will, of course, put Trish's blog, Just Me and Lily, as well as her social media channels and where you can find the link to listen to part one in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, please give it a share on social media to your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe, you can buy a Vent t-shirt or you can buy a ticket to Just Checking Live number four, part two, which is on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.